You know, over the, the years in ministry, in, in nearly two decades of ministry, I've had the incredible joy of officiating a number of weddings. Uh, I love weddings. They're, they are a lot of fun because there are often things that just go wrong in a wedding. Uh, there are things that doesn't matter how much you plan. In fact, now when I do, when Cindy and I do pre-marriage counseling and we prepare people for their wedding, we point out to them, you can plan that day down to the minute, but you better be ready for when the plans fall apart because things will happen. Uh, and often they're, they're humorous. I mean, I've, I've been at weddings where they've got a toddler doing the, the, bearing the ring, which always just looks really cute and sounds really fun when you've got somebody's nephew or niece and they're two years old and you put them in this little suit or this outfit and you give them a little uh, cushion with the ring on. It's all fine and well until they stop midway through and get distracted and decide to head off in some other direction and run away with the ring. Uh, that's a lot of fun. I did one wedding with a groom, not the bride, the groom, from about 30 seconds before the bride walked into the sanctuary, he started crying. And I'm talking ugly crying. There was snot and everything. And this guy wailed the whole way through his own wedding, uh, which was really entertaining. I've, I've obviously had weddings that start late. That's, that happens. Sometimes a key guest is not there, uh, and so people have to wait. The, the most interesting wedding that started late for me was one where I got there and realized I was horribly overdressed because the groom was wearing board shorts. And the wedding started late because they were having a problem trying to tap the beer keg. Uh, true story. They, they, ple they said, look, can we, just, can, can we wait before we start? We need to tap the beer keg uh, so that our guests can get their beers before we start. Uh, and so, yes, I've, I've seen some interesting things at weddings. But one of my favorite parts at a wedding is when it is said and done and the bride and groom kiss. Uh, someone, sometimes myself or, or somebody in the party, will say, Ladies and gentlemen, let me welcome Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. And of course, everyone just cheers and shouts and applauds. And, and it's this moment where we celebrate because we, we know that this is a new family unit that is now beginning. There's this, this new union that are coming together. And the two flesh are going to become one. And this, this family is going to be created. And, and everyone breaks out. Everyone celebrates. And we celebrate because we know that family is important. In fact, even if we're in a a dysfunctional or, or a family that's less than ideal, or perhaps we've, we're in a broken family and, and there's all sorts of reasons, uh, and we might understand those reasons, but there's still this heart's desire for family. There's still this heart's desire to be in this little unit where there's love and care. Perhaps that's why in, I think it was 1979, four sisters got together and they started a band or a group known as Sister Sledge. And they recorded their one and only hit single. Anyone know what that one was called? We Are Family. You knew where we were going, okay? So we are family. I, I'm not going to sing the song, but we are family. I, I think it became a number one hit because that's the desire that we have in our hearts. We want to be a part of a family. You know, no, no matter how ideal our family might even appear, 
Even those, those picture-perfect families, there's always heartache, there's always problems, there's always pains. Uh, you know, family can be the source of joy, but it can also be the source of heartache. There's so much emotion attached to this idea of family. And so this morning, as we continue over the last few weeks, we've been talking about this idea of worship and this idea of seeking revival. This morning, I want to talk about the concept of family and how important family is for worship and for revival. But I want to reframe family this morning, and it's not me reframing family. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who did this. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me uh, to Mark chapter 3, and I've just realized that because Trevor is not here this morning, I didn't actually get the, the words up on screen, so they're not going to be on screen, so you can either whip out a phone and open up your Bible app, or you can grab the Bible in the pew in front of you, uh, and we're going to read a couple of verses from Mark chapter 3. So this is in Mark chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 31. We're just going to read four verses there. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. You know, one of the things why I love this passage is because I think in this passage, Jesus gives us a glimpse of family. Jesus specifically points out the family of God. Uh, we know when we read through the rest of the New Testament, not only Jesus speaks about family, but the Apostle Paul talks about how we are the family of God. There's this idea that those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, those who sit at the feet of Jesus, are now family. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm the first one that's ever told you this, but if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and somebody else in this sanctuary knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're brothers and sisters. We're family together because we are family in Christ. Now, Jesus doesn't nullify our earthly family. Now, I know sometimes we might read one or two passages where Jesus talks about unless someone hates their mother and father, they cannot be his disciples. Uh, Jesus has a very specific meaning and reason why he's saying that. Jesus doesn't nullify mother, father, and children and, and the extended family. There's still space for that. But Jesus understands that because of our longing and our need and our desire for family, Jesus reframes it. You know, I, I, I'm so upset that uh, Hannah, our youth pastor, is with all the Sunday school teachers at the moment because I, I, this morning I really wanted to steal some lingo from our millennial generation uh, because every now and then Hannah says something in the office and I just look at her with that blank stare of, what are you saying? And I realize she is actually speaking English. I just don't speak millennial. Uh, millennial have all these terms and words. And I think if, if, if a millennial was reframing this passage, they would say Jesus was saying, these peeps are fam, yo. 
I will say it's a surefire way to know a word is going to be stopped being used by the millennials when an old guy like me uses it. So that, those words going out. But that's what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, these people here at my feet, this is family. This is the family of God in Christ. And this is the place where we can find belonging. This is the place where we can find acceptance. This is the place we can find love because we are loved and accepted and belong to Jesus Christ. And therefore, we do that together. You know, as I read through this passage, there are a couple of things that stand out. And and this morning, I want to just focus on three things that I think Jesus invites us to consider if we want to experience this idea of family. There are three things Jesus invites us to consider, uh, and, and those are the, our primary person, our peculiar people, and our present purpose. And yes, it alliterates. I know that. Our primary person. Jesus points out that our primary person is Jesus Christ. Our primary relationship, our, our first order relationship should be that with Jesus Christ. In fact, if there's, if there's one truth that I have attempted to pound over and over in all my years in ministry, it is that simply we are invited into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're not called to religion. In fact, salvation isn't about religion. Religion finds, the word religion finds in its root Latin word of religar, which means to tie or to bind. In fact, our English word ligaments comes from the same root word. Our ligaments that tie and bind our bones together. This is what religion is. Religion is is a bind. Religion is is a handcuff. It's something that binds us. We're not called to religion. We're called to relationship. A relationship with Jesus Christ that gives life, that brings joy. Salvation is a gift of God. This is what Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 6. In fact, if if I were to kind of give you a little test and I was going to say, fill in the blanks. And I start off the sentence, eternal life is blank, blank. What is eternal life? Fill in those blanks. Some of us might go, okay, well, eternal, eternal life is to live forever. Eternal life is joy and forgiveness and things like that. Well, the correct answer is in John chapter 17, when Jesus says this, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, God the Father. What is eternal life? Knowing God. And Jesus goes on in that verse, the only true God, and to know Jesus Christ, whom you sent. What is eternal life? Eternal life is knowing God. It's knowing Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul was probably one of the most religious people in all of history. In fact, he writes about it in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, he quotes his religious pedigree. 
He talks about how he was born a Jew. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was zealous for the law of God. He kept the letter of the entire law. In fact, he was so zealous for the religion of God that he persecuted the church. He arrested Christians, those he perceived as a threat to Judaism. But then he meets Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And in that moment of meeting Jesus Christ, Paul discovers my religion will not save me. My religion is worthless. Paul goes on in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 and 10. He says this, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Paul says, knowing Christ is everything to him. Anything else is like rubbish. In fact, the, the old King James Version uh, translated it as dung. And the reason the old King James translated that knowing him, uh, to not know him is like rubbish and dung was because the original word, the skubala, used to describe sewage. Imagine that. That's what Paul said. Paul is effectively saying everything in comparison to knowing Christ is like sewage. It's like excrement. There's certain words that I could use, but I won't because I'm on the pulpit. But that's what Paul says. Knowing Jesus is that primary relationship. The primary person that we connect to is Jesus Christ. In fact, when I... When I talked about weddings and getting married a few moments ago, when Cindy and I do pre-marriage counseling with young couples who, you know, they're smitten with one another and they use language of, oh, he's my everything, she's my all, uh, you know, this is the best person in the whole world and I'm so glad God's put us together and, and that's all fine and well, but we point out over and over, if you make your spouse your number one person, your primary relationship, you're headed for heartache. Uh, don't get me wrong, you should love your spouse with everything you've got. But your primary person has to be Jesus Christ. For your sake and for your spouse. We're invited to know Jesus. To know Him. To relate with Him. And so Jesus is this primary person. And that's what the crowd at His feet knew. And so they're sitting at his feet, listening to him, looking to him, wanting to know him more. And I think that's what Jesus teaches us this morning, to know that our primary person is Jesus Christ. The second thing I think Jesus invites us to consider in this passage is our peculiar people. And I know you might kind of wonder, what on earth, what do you mean by peculiar people? I want to explain that in a moment. But the people around us are our peculiar people. Years ago, there was a Christian music group, I think in the early 90s, maybe even the late 1980s, uh, that came out and they called themselves Peculiar People. And their name comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where, for, where Peter speaks to us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and he says, You are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. What Peter is saying to us is, if we know Jesus Christ as our primary person, then we are in his family and we're a chosen people. And where Peter says God's special possession, uh, it could equally be translated as God's peculiar people. Now, I know some of you are going, doesn't peculiar mean a bit weird? Maybe we've slightly changed that. And, you know, I would argue some of us are pretty weird, so that's okay. Peculiar means uncommon and distinctive. And let me tell you, in the world around us, those who put Jesus Christ first, those who seek to know Jesus and those who seek to become like Jesus are pretty uncommon and pretty distinctive. And that's what we're called to be together. Together, we're this peculiar people who live in unity together. You know, when, when I read that passage from Mark chapter 3, it's this image of them in the house. A couple of verses before that, in verse 20, we read, Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Jesus' family wanted to have a family intervention. They're like, this is getting out of hand. You've got all these crowds following you. You're not even eating. You're, you're, you know, there's something weird. There's something strange going on here, and you're, you're causing public embarrassment. And so they want to go because they think he's lost his senses and this is why they send word, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. Now, ordinarily, within that cultural context, it didn't matter how old you were. I know some moms in the room this morning might really like this idea. It didn't matter how old you were. If mom called, you went. If mom is outside with brothers and sisters and they're there for you, you went. And Jesus doesn't. Jesus stops and he says, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? And he looks at those sitting at his feet. These peculiar people here. This is my family. My brothers and sisters, you and I are called the family of God because we sit at his feet. Jesus wasn't rejecting his earthly family. He touches on that later on. But Jesus was stating that our connection in Christ will be stronger than anything else, even stronger than blood. Now, you might know that expression, blood is thicker than water, and we understand that it means family is more important. And Jesus is saying in this moment, no, being united in me, that's the connection. That's what creates the family and the family of God. If we're a follower of Jesus, we are in a family of faith together. But I love the image of family. Because you know what? Families are not perfect. You know that already by experience. No matter how great the family might seem, there's always some interesting problem or, or some challenge. In fact, I heard somebody once say, family is a lot like fudge. Mostly sweet, occasionally with nuts. And I think that probably could sum up some of our biological families. They're mostly sweet, but we've got a couple of nuts in them. And you know that. 
That's why at some family gatherings we like, oh, do we really have to invite that uncle? Do we really have to invite that cousin? That nephew is going to just, you know, be off the charts. And families aren't perfect. We know that. So don't for a moment think that this family of Christ is suddenly going to be perfect. That's just not going to happen. We're human. We're fallible. We're fallen. We're prone to selfishness. We, we want to do our own thing. And we bring that in even when we come together as the family of Christ. You know, I've often joked that if you ever find the perfect church, please leave because you will mess it up. There's no such thing as a perfect church. Where I get that expression from is actually from an old poem uh, by, by Mavis Williams, and it's called The Perfect Church. So here's the poem that she wrote. She said, If you should find the perfect church without one fault or smear, for goodness sake, don't join that church, you'd spoil the atmosphere. If you should find the perfect church where all anxieties cease, then pass it by, lest by joining it you'd mar the masterpiece. Made of imperfect men, then let's cease looking for that church and love the church we're in, and let's keep working in our church until the resurrection, and then we will each join that church without imperfection. If you find the perfect church, leave it. And if you're watching online and you're trying to find an imperfect church, join us, because we're pretty imperfect here at White Rick Baptist Church. We get things wrong from time to time. That's human nature. But yet we're invited into this place. Because just like a family, so the spiritual family is a place that is supposed to care for one another in times of trials and in times of challenges. You know, the Apostle Paul doesn't only speak of the family of God like a family. He also talks to us like a body and, and uses the analogy that we're a body. You know, when there's, when there's sickness, when there's hurt, when there's pain, we're supposed to come together and help that. You know, when one member hurts, we all hurt. You know, there's a big difference between a dead organization and a living organism. In a dead organization, when something's not working, you know, in, in a business, for example, if there's a branch or a division that's not working, it's not productive, it's not bringing in an income, an organization simply cuts it off. Not so in an organism. When there's hurt, when there's pain, the rest of the organism comes together to help that one. Let me use a silly and, and simple illustration. If I'm working somewhere and let's say I'm, I'm using a hammer and I'm trying to knock in a nail or something like that and I whack my thumb with the nail, with the hammer, sorry. If I've whacked it with the nail, I've done something horribly wrong. But if I whack my thumb with the hammer, I don't go, oh, my thumb is hurting, let me cut it off. No. The rest of my body jumps in to help my thumb. I might let out a shriek. I might drop the hammer. I might grab my thumb or maybe even suck my thumb because I'm trying to help my thumb. That's what an organism does. This is what Jesus says as the family of God, as the family of Christ. When one hurts, so the others come together. So the others come and help that hurts. And then just like a normal family, so the family of God celebrates 
You know, I, I love the fact that when we as people go through milestones, we invite others to celebrate that. Weddings, births, birthdays, graduations, uh, achievements. We come together and we celebrate those. This is what I love about last week when we did those baptisms and every time the person came up out of the water, the whole church applauses and, and celebrates because we see God at work and we rejoice at what God is doing. Families are supposed to celebrate together. You and I, as the family of Christ, are invited to celebrate together, to celebrate what God is doing. We're invited to worship as we worship God together. We celebrate Jesus Christ because Jesus is alive. We celebrate his resurrection every time we meet. This is why we celebrate and share in the communion once a month. It's to celebrate Jesus Christ that we are invited into this family because we're in Christ. In fact, I love how the psalmist writes it in Psalm 68. In Psalm 68, the psalmist says that God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families, and he leads out the prisoners with singing. We as the family of Christ are a place of belonging for all people who are united in Christ. So we have a primary person, Jesus Christ. We have a peculiar people, the family of God. And then lastly, what Jesus points out, we have a present purpose. We have a relationship with Christ. We have a family of God, but we have a purpose do you notice what Jesus says when the family come in, when his mother and brothers come to call him and take him out because they think he's out of his mind? Jesus looks around and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? They are those who do the will of God. Those who do God's will. The family of God, we're not just a family that comes and sings kumbaya and has some cheap coffee after the service and then off we go into our own little lives. No, we're given a purpose to do the will of God. You know, we humans like to measure things. It's all about success. It's all about up and to the right. The numbers in the graph need to go up and to the right. I don't know what your definition of success is. But the Bible says the definition of success is doing the will of God. Doing the will of God. Spending time in his word, understanding what he calls us to, and then going and living it. You know, there was a, a missionary to Africa by the name of David Livingston. David Livingston once wrote, I would rather be in the heart of Africa in the will of God than on the throne of England out of his will. You know, as somebody from Africa, I can tell you the place isn't actually that bad. Even though that song made it sound like that when we sang years ago, oh, please, Lord, don't send me to Africa. When we live in the will of God, when we're pursuing his will, you know what? We're going to get to that place where we don't mind where he sends us because we're going to understand this is where God wants us. This is where God blesses us. This is how God has made us and how God wants to use us. And so Jesus says, this is my family, not simply those who sit at my feet, those who do the will of God. 
Every now and then, uh, you know, I get an opportunity to speak to teenagers at one of our local Christian schools. And, and sometimes the question comes up, how do I know God's will? And, and when I unpack it, invariably the question is actually, how do I know God's will for my life? That's what, what people want to know. How do I know God's will for my life? And, and generally people mean, how can I do what I want to do and have God bless that? No, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, my family are those who do the will of God. How do you want to know the will of God? You spend time in the word of God. And you do according to what God says to do. To love one another. To forgive one another. You're going to get plenty of practice in the family of God to love and to forgive and to encourage and to share with one another. And so Jesus says, you want to do the will of God? Spend time in my word. I read from Psalm a moment ago, the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 32 verse 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Now, we might read that and, and wonder what on earth that means, but you've got experience of this. If you're married, husbands, if you're married, I know there has been a time you were doing something that your wife didn't want you to do, and she just gave you a look, and you knew, and you knew to stop doing that immediately. Mothers will tell you, there are times they just need to look at their child, and that child knows instantly, if I don't stop this course of action, a course correction will come. Now, those might be sort of negative examples, but that's what the psalmist is saying. We know how to communicate with one another just through our eyes. God knows to do the same. How do we know how he's guiding us? How do we see his eye? It's through reading his word and putting his word into practice. I know that sometimes when we read through this and we read the Word of God, we start to stress and, and maybe we get anxious because we're worried God's will is going to lead us into a place we don't want to go. My brothers and sisters, God has a good plan for you. God might not show the entire journey for you, and He just expects you to take one step of faith at a time. But I know that as we take that step, as we follow and obey Him, that's when He reveals to us His incredible plan and His purpose. And it might be that this morning as I talk about doing the will of God and following the Word of God, you might go, well, Brian, you don't know the journey that I've taken so far. You don't know the sin and the things that I've done. God would never draw me into that. My brothers and sisters, that is a lie from Satan himself. God's mercies are new every morning. And he will bring you into the family every time. You know, I remember when we had those old GPS units in our cars uh, before cell phones and Google Maps and Apple Maps. But some of you might remember those old GPS units and you would punch in the address and you would head off following it and it would tell you, turn left, turn right. And, and if you took a wrong turning, it would shout out, recalculating. And then it would get you. Uh, sure, it might be that God has to sometimes recalculate your life. But it hasn't taken him by surprise. He knows. And he still invites us into that family, into that place of living within his will. Let me close with this. If you want to know the will of God, start doing the will of God. Obey and follow the will of God. Because one thing I do know, 
God is not going to show you the rest of the journey if you're not prepared to take that first step. God calls us to trust Him and to take that step of faith. And then He shows us the next step. I think sometimes God does that because He knows us. We're weak, generally. If we saw the entire picture that He would call us to, we would probably run the other way. And so He invites us to take one step at a time. Our primary person is Jesus Christ. Do you know Him? Do you have a personal relationship with Him? Our peculiar people are the family of God. Are you involved with this family, serving and worshiping together? Are you loving one another? And thirdly, our present purpose is to do the will of God. Do you know His good, perfect, and pleasing will as recorded in His Word? Then go and do it. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you have not left us abandoned as orphans. But rather, Christ, through you, you have invited us into a family. The family of God. And we are brothers and sisters together because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I know there are those this morning who are here or perhaps watching online who have come from less than ideal families where there's heartache and there's hurt. Yet there's still this yearning to be in a family and in a community of love where, where there is acceptance and grace and mercy. Oh God, I pray that people would find that here through White Rock Baptist. And just like any family, when there are those moments of hurt, of conflict, of tension, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring unity you would bring forgiveness. You would bring restoration. So that as we learn to love one another, a watching world would see that. And they would understand that there is life in Jesus Christ. And then God, as we step into your family through relationship through Jesus Christ, I pray that you would help us to obey your word, to follow your will, to to live out the purpose you've given us. The purpose to proclaim Christ. The purpose to make disciples. The purpose to love one another. Oh God, would you build your church. And may your kingdom come here. May you be glorified in all that we do. As your family, we thank you and we say, Amen. Amen.